there, friends. It's Misty Dykema with Symantle, and you're listening to Marketing Sweats, where we talk to hardworking professionals in marketing, technology, and customer experience. And you get to hear about the heart, soul, and yes, even the sweat they pour into getting the job done right. Today's episode, you all, is no doubt one of the most unique episodes we will be releasing our entire season. We had a truly humbling opportunity to interview the one and only celebrity spokesperson, Mike Rowe. Samantle came to know Mike about 10 years ago when he signed up to be a spokesperson for our largest customer, Caterpillar. However, most know Mike for the role that he has played as host and narrator on shows like The Deadliest Catch and Dirty Jobs. Some also know Mike through the PR campaign that he launched in 2008 to reinvigorate skilled trades in the U.S., Mike actually won't be talking much about his sort of resume on this interview. We were excited to talk to Mike because he actually has tons of amazing philosophies on marketing and communications and branding. And so that's what we really wanted to dig into. I do need to let you know, however, we interviewed Mike in front of a live studio audience. And so the room conditions were not ideal. We had a noisy air conditioning system and the audio quality was kind of faint. But if you've seen Mike on Dirty Jobs, you know his working conditions are never ideal. So I guess we were unintentionally on brand for him. As we get into the interview, please keep in mind that what I hope all of these interviews do throughout season one is provide you a little bit of insight into who the people are that we work with every day. And so you're going to learn a lot about Mike's philosophies on authenticity, and I'm excited to talk about that on the other side. So here you have it, guys. Mike Rowe. Welcome, everybody, again. My name is Misty Dykema, and this is Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs and all other things. And so, Mike, I am so thankful to have you here today. As is typical, when I have an opportunity to interview somebody for the podcast, I go out and I do a lot of research on that person. So I've been looking over your bio over the past couple days, better understanding your upbringing and sort of what makes you tick. Mm -hmm. And I think what was most sort of profound to me in that process is it seems like you have taken every opportunity available to you and grown it. So, you know, you've been very iterative in your career. One thing builds on the next. And I think that says a lot about who you are as a person. But I was particularly struck by the way you describe yourself in your Facebook bio. It says, professional lab rat, occasional spokesperson, perpetual narrator, frustrated writer, erstwhile producer, inveterate procrastinator, and bloody do-gooder. Wow. <laughs> and I could not have picked 14 words that more succinctly <laughs> describe my crow than that. And I don't know if you wrote that, but I, you know, I think one of the things we struggle with as marketers, and you know, we have a whole group of marketers in the room today, is really defining who we are, our identity, and then being able to project that to the world. So I wondered before we get into all the nuts and bolts of your views on marketing and communication, if you could just share with the room a little bit more about who you are and how you came to know your identity so clearly and why you hold on to that. Well, well, I mean, in general, I think it goes to managing expectations. You're going to work in front of people then your basic choice is you can either fool them or out-clever them or just be as transparent as you can. For a long time, I sort of imitated hosts and I imitated narrators and I imitated all of the people I saw on TV and did my best version of whatever they were doing. And as a result, I wound up performing a lot. And performance in a really general way is kind of the enemy of authenticity, I think. So for instance, sitting here right now, my inclination is to look at the camera. You know, if you're listening to this, you should know that we're also filming this. 
and pointing out that it's like 85 or 90 degrees <laughs> and that we're sweating and that <laughs> it's amazingly warm in here. And so just, you know, saying that out loud to me, it just brings everybody into the situation and hopefully generates some level of, of sympathy, which is impossible. You can't overstate the importance of sympathy right. in marketing and marketing and possibly empathy right. as well. I appreciate you sharing that because I think I struggled with those things, you know, coming up, performing on stage, you think that that's what people expect of you. Sure. But I think that's really good advice to just name it. So. Well, I mean, if, if you don't, then somebody else is going to name it for you. Right. And they're going to decide who you are and what you ought to be, and they're going to bring all their expectations to it. Right. I really don't think it matters whether it's a commercial or whether it's a performance of a play or whether you're posting a thing. Posting a meeting, right? Doesn't matter. Right. right. You know, they're either buying it or they're not. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Let's take your personal brand that, like I said, you you hold very tightly onto and it's very clear to all of us that you are those things and talk about how you have partnered with companies that you at some level you know, share your values mm -hmm. so we're here today with a group of caterpillar folks but i know you've worked for ford and granger and motorola and lee jeans and the host goes on so talk to me about your process for identifying when you're when it feels right when you know that you've found a company that's a good fit it's the classic venn diagram you know if, if we have a lot of shared real estate then it's generally of interest. I remember, you know, I, I don't own dirty jobs, but I own me. <clears throat> and there was a time in 2007 when it became clear that that show had become a big deal and it was going to be a big deal for a while. And so my partner and I, Mary, started to think in terms of, well, what can we build around that show? You know, what, what kind of tertiary or penumbral thing can we do that can be ours? And the short answer was, find a cause that you actually truly care about and put a standard in the ground, sure. right? And then find companies who share that belief. Sure. And then find a way on the mercenary side to make money and to, and to help them. So we always joked that <laughs> with regard to the foundation and to business, that in all things, there's a, a missionary and a mercenary yeah. position. Yeah. And, uh, both of which are underrated, in my view. So with the foundation, we focus exclusively on making sure those values, those goals are put forward. On the marketing side, we make sure that we can find campaigns and work with people who are willing to be as transparent as we've been discussing, right? So yeah, we want to work with companies that on the one hand, don't mind me admitting that it's a million degrees in here. And um, we love that. Good. I mean, that's why we've worked well together Absolutely. over the years. Talk to me a little bit, because over a beer last night, you and I talked about cause marketing. So how do you think about the work you do with your foundation and MicroWorks differently, maybe, than you think about branding and marketing, you know, outwardly in the mass campaign sort of sense? Yeah, you know, I think cause-related is kind of a trigger word, okay. you know, because it's so easy to abuse. Sure. And I, I, I don't want to go into that category. But at the same time, it's two sides of the same coin. So if I really and truly am a guy who honestly believes we can affirmatively close the skills gap by making a more persuasive case for 7.3 million jobs that actually exist, right. and if I really do truly believe that $1.5 trillion in student loans is just simply too much and that we're pushing too many people for the wrong reasons down the same path, 
well, then it makes no sense to ever step away from that. And so we incorporate to some degree that messaging right. into everything we do, not into every example of everything we do, but into every relationship that we have. So it just starts there. It starts with making sure that Caterpillar or Ford or Granger or Motorola or any of those companies understand mm -hmm. that our basis for doing business primarily comes down to this idea that we can positively impact your workforce, right. that we can make a more persuasive case for the jobs that exist in your company. Right. Once we can agree on that, then we sit down and creatively say, okay, what, what won't bore people to tears, <laughs> right? It's, it's kind of, right? I mean, you really, you start with the bar, it's, it's kind of low, it's the Hippocratic Oath. Right. First, do no harm, right. you know? And then, how can we find a way to take the core values of that company, along with mine, and put them out there in a way that hopefully is entertaining. That's a statement. You know, I was talking to Mary about that. She said that you do not shy away from funding, and you want to make sure that funding gets integrated, but it's getting harder and harder in the sense of these 15 and 30 second spots of the world. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about <clears throat> your creative direction is to the process as you're sort of integrating that theme. Funny's hard. Funny's hard. It is, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe the hardest thing, and there's nothing more tragic than looking at an attempt to be funny that that fails and in marketing that man, it just happens you see it every day right sure. so if deliberateness mm -hmm. is the enemy right. of authenticity and if production is the enemy of authenticity and if engagement is truly the goal then to deliberately try to be funny is no more doomed than deliberately trying to be right. earnest right. so yeah. that's the thing it's not about being funny it's about being as real as you can and keeping your tongue in your cheek. Yeah. And if there is an opportunity for humor, take it, but don't get too ahead of your skis. Talk to me about what that looks like, maybe particularly in relationship with Caterpillar, since they're your audience here. You know, last night you said to me, there's a very different approach than going in with the plan and just letting it happen, sort of the production and execution. So how do you just feel the room and let that happen? Uh, okay, so storyboards are okay. a great instance. Sure. It's fine to have them. But if you fall in love with them, you're doomed. Because if you if you go out there with the goal of bringing the storyboard to life, then you're somebody with a vision. And nothing's more dangerous than someone with a vision, right. except maybe for somebody with none at all, right? So you, it's, it's more like choreography and less like really and truly bringing a thing to life. Right, right. So you need the freedom to, to fail and to try something different. But you also need a plan because production's expensive sure. and nobody wants to sit around and watch somebody free associate, you know, on a $200,000 shoot day. So you have to give people enough comfort to understand and enough trust, right. you know, that we're all going to leave with what we want. Absolutely. But at the same time, no, I, I can't tell you. I mean, Jake will tell you this. How many times have we set out to do a thing and then realized halfway through the thing we set out to get or do, we actually stumbled across something that was better. More magical. That yeah. we didn't know we wanted. Right. And then the trick becomes, do you have the freedom and the trust to stop, pivot, sure. pick that thing up, sure. and run with it? Yeah. And that's, in my experience, the best stuff ever, yeah. whether it's on dirty jobs right. or a commercial campaign, is the stuff you didn't know you thought you wanted. That's awesome. Do you find that that's difficult with organizations, very large organizations that have these highly protected brands, 
And so you go into that equation thinking, you know, we've got to follow these rules and these guidelines, but yet you're talking to actual people. And that's, I think, something we admire really most about you is in the era of industrial marketing and B2B manufacturing and, you know, these big sort of identities of the world. Sure. But yet, at the end of the day, it's people that have families, you know, that are buying B2C products, yep. but they also run their business. So I think that's why you've been such an iconic spokesperson for Caterpillar in particular, is you're able to take this legacy historical brand, but bring the real life nature of the consumer to all of us who don't often get to see that every day when we're sitting behind our desks and our computers sure. doing marketing campaigns. Well, thanks. You know, there are no new lessons for me. Okay. The, the big prime directive happened with Dirty Jobs. And when I pitched that show, my exact words to my masters at Discovery were, look, I don't think you guys need another expert on your air. You're, back then, Discovery was nothing but experts. I don't really want to be the voice of authority because I'm not. So look at me not as a host, look at me as an avatar sure. or a, a cipher. Sure. A fan of your brand is really what we said. And if, you, if you'll send me out into the world with a small crew as a fan of your brand and let me look under the rock, I bet we'll come back with a show that feels different. The distinction of being able to go out into the world and make a case as a fan of a brand instead of a spokesperson for the brand. Absolutely. That's the thing. That's the lesson. Right. And every other thing that I might say that's vaguely interesting will be derivative of that. Right. Once you go too far into going, well, what would the discovery guy say? Yeah. What would the cat guy say? Right. Then I'm in the way of the most valuable thing that, that the client really has, which should be happy workers and satisfied customers. Right. So our job, with, in my view, with good marketing, is to make sure we can find a way to let a happy customer or a happy worker do the heavy lifting because you'll never find a better ambassador for any brand than the people who use it, love it, and work for it. Well, it's very clear that you sort of, and you've said this several times already today, don't lead from the front, but see yourself as, you know, elevating other stories. And I even see it last night in your social interactions. You know, it's not about you. It's about really making others feel really good. So, Thanks. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's been great to get to know you. Another question that came up as I was preparing for today is this idea of paying media. A lot of us in the room are marketers and we're constantly struggling with trying to figure out what do we spend our marketing dollars on. And so another story that was shared with me is that when Ford chose to advertise on Dirty Jobs, it wasn't the logical choice, right? It wasn't by Nielsen ratings where nope. they should have been spending their ad dollars. But yet, I think what they found, and you'll have to fill in the gaps, is that the audience was so authentic to who their user was that they saw sort of massive spikes down the buying funnel to the mm -hmm. dealer. And so as you would advise us marketers, as we're thinking about media buys and where to spend our money, how do you tap into, you know, knowing that it may not be what makes sense on paper or the numbers, but you know your audience is there and they're going to continue to engage? This would have been 2006. And Ford spent a lot of money trying to figure out. It's when the term engagement really became sticky. Okay. Yeah. So what, did, what does that mean, truly? Somebody told me, I don't remember who, over at Team Detroit, that we were really looking, we started looking for shows where the audience watched it like this. Now, this is a podcast, so you can't see me, but I'm sitting on the edge of my seat and I'm leaning forward and I'm looking at the camera, okay. right? They started looking for shows where the audience was really watching. Okay. Whatever metrics they used came back that the people who watched Dirty Jobs 
really watched it. Their attention was insane. They remembered catchphrases. Every episode generated t-shirts and hats with goofy, spontaneous expressions written on them. And they loved that. So even though we didn't have an enormous, we had a good-sized audience. We had, you know, two and a half, three million people watching each episode. But in the day, Ford was really swinging with looking for the fat part of the bat. You know, they wanted eight, nine, ten million people. They wanted Extreme Home Makeover. They were putting all their stuff there. But nobody watched Extreme Home Makeover from the edge of their seat. Right. They were lying down on their couch. Sure. Right? <laughs> and so, and so they they said, okay, this is a this is a different kind of show. And and then they went to the next level to say, well, who are these people who are watching? And then to their surprise. Everybody's surprised, in fact. Dirty Jobs was split something like 55, 45, male-female. Then yeah. people assumed it'd be 70, 75, 25, right? But it was almost down the middle. And of course, the many of the men who were watching were truck drivers. Sure. And so it just it became a no-brainer That's for right. Well, I know in conversations I've had with many of the people in the room and, and other Caterpillar sort of brand marketers, we've talked about this idea that Brands are needing to become part of communities, right? And trying to figure out who Caterpillar's community really is. And you've probably spent as much time as any of us in the field with these dealers and customers. What have you learned through that process about what the Caterpillar community feels like? Who are these people and how can we take that in as we go write our next big ad campaign? I uh, I use some shorthand with Mary all the time. Micro, macro. Okay. Right? Partly because it's terribly clever, because I might grow. <laughs> yeah. But the bigger the thing, the smaller the approach. Okay. And it's counterintuitive, but with big brands, you know, the temptation is to tell big stories. Sure. Big music, big voices, big, 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 big. But I think I think it gets noisy, and I think most viewers become inherently suspicious of that. And so we try. The inverse is true too. With a very small brand, you know, you have to make a big sound. Right. But with a very big brand, you don't. So when it comes to local, to answer your question, all things are local. Right. You know, all politics are local. Sure. All marketing is local. Right. And again, if you really get ahead of your skis and start talking about the single-minded proposition and start looking at your research and being slavish to it, sure. then I then I think you lose the heart of it. So I want to dig into that. So much of what you said was some of the questions I want to talk about today. You know, the people who work with you say that you are so passionate about not coming off with any pretense. You've said that several times. But part of what you're also convicted in is your crew understands that. You've spent a lot of time getting them up to speed. So that's why, you know, you don't necessarily want to work with other crews. And also, when you talk about return the favor, talk me through how that has translated into the social media space. You know, we're so used to micro on TV and, and those sort of mm-hmm. things, but you've had to really figure out how to create that audience on Facebook. And yeah. I think all of us are struggling with that as well. Well, tail kind of wags the dog a little in this case. I mean, the my Facebook page predated returning the favor. Mm-hmm. And boy, talk about a big lesson for Facebook. You know, they've they put a lot of money into this watch program, and they're they're trying to figure that out. And I'm still honestly trying to understand it. It's a it's a combination really of it's part Netflix and it's part YouTube and it's part this and it's part that. Right. But what is Facebook really? I mean, right. are, are they going to be able to create a destination where you go and see new content? Right. Uh, my guess is they will because they have an awful lot of viewers baked in. 
But how are they really going to accomplish that? So you work with Facebook directly then? Do you go mm -hmm. sit down and have meetings and brainstorm that brand? We've had a couple, yeah. but but what we're learning is the stuff that's working for them, and this is it's just such an obvious thing. The only stuff that's really, really working is the stuff where there was a pre-existing page with pre-existing followers okay. who were engaged for whatever reason. So Jada Pinkett uh, Smith's show, a red table talk, whatever that's, that's doing well. Okay. My show's doing well. But I had five million people there already. Sure. So an episode of Returning the Favor on my page has the same basic, call it brand equity, sure. as a funny text from my mother or a rumination from my dog. Right. Okay? All of these things go to the same place. And I mean, look, yesterday I posted a video that Jake did over at Semantic. You know, it's on the one hand, it's apropos of nothing. It's a new day, and I want you guys to see what's on my mind. Right. On the other hand, I'm fairly calculated when sure. it comes to you know thinking about well, why do I want you to see this this video? Talking through that thought process. In an era where you're going to get comments and mm -hmm. not knowing how to respond to those, what is the thought process you go through to make sure that it's worthy content to post on Micro's channel? Oh, man, that's such a tricky word, worthy, <laughs> right? You worthy. hate that word. Well, I mean, I like the word because, because nothing is worthy. This is social media. Sure. This is a giant, you know, if, I mean, once you look at it in terms of is this worthy, right. then I don't, I wouldn't know what to put up. But if you say... What feels real? Okay. You know, you know, what am I doing today? <clears throat> I mean, I don't post cat videos, recipes, and things like that. But I do post, you know, everybody on my page knows who my partners are. Sure. Everybody knows what I'm working on, whether it's a book or whatever the new project is. So right now with Cat, we're involved in a couple new ideas. We've got you know the type the trades, yeah. we've got this crazy parody of a home shopping thing that we did that I'm looking forward to to sharing too. But we also have been brainstorming for a while about this concept called Micro My Life. And so four or five years ago, somebody sent me this ridiculously banal, mundane home video of their family trying to get organized in a club basement to take a picture around the holidays, right? You stand here, you stand there, this woman on the couch, I mean, it's all chaos, and somebody's filming the whole thing. It's absolutely ridiculous. And they said, I just feel like my life would be more interesting if you narrated it. So we took this video <laughs> and we had some we had some wine, you know, maybe some, I, it, was a, it was a while ago. And I happened to be in a recording studio and the engineer put some Deadliest Catch music behind it. <laughs> and I narrated the scene, you know, a terrible night outside of Pittsburgh, you know, and, and, it, and it was absurd. And I, sure. and I threw it up there. And a couple million people saw it. And so people were like, hey, would you do this for my video? Well, you know, so what do you do? It's like, if I'm in a world where the only thing I want to do is amuse myself, and if I have time to take people's videos and narrate them and put them up there to build my page, I'll do that. I mean, I've done crazier things. But I didn't really have time to make that a thing. But I knew that it could be. So I made a note, and I said, look, at some point, I don't know with whom, and I don't know where or when, but at some point we ought to talk about my growing people's life and, and, and use that as a thing. So Jake and I kicked it around, 
I threw up that old video a couple of, maybe a week ago, just to see if people remembered it and to remind myself if they loved it, and they did. And then so Jake filmed himself at his home making a BLT, all right? And he shot it really well. He probably overproduced it, because that's what Jake does. <laughs> and so I get this video, and it looks terrific. It's like in 4K, and it's got slow motion, and he's frying bacon in a pan. And he sends it to me. I laugh, because it's funny, and I had my iPhone, and I literally stepped into the shower, because I sound great in the shower. <laughs> and I narrated the ridiculousness of Jake making a BLT. And I sent it back to him. And he was like, oh, this is awesome. And he sent it back to me with my voice in it. Right. And I put it up on Facebook yesterday morning. And so far, 215,000 people have watched this video. And you should read the comments. Now, I don't know what will come of it, but you all should know that that's an example of, look, we've got tightened the trades, we've got this thing, we shot all this stuff, we've got these assets, and they're all good, and now we're gonna figure out the best way to leverage them. Right. But somewhere in the middle of it, Jake BLT. made a BLT. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I went in the shower to tell you about it. And then I shared that with five and a half million people. And now people are going, can I send you, you know what? I pick up dog poop, that could be interesting. <laughs> Maybe it will be. Sure. But to be serious about it, you know, if you look at CAD as the obvious giant brand they are, what's the instinct? It's to make an anthem of a spot about some guys up in Alaska who built a bridge or, or dug a mine with CAD equipment and who changed the world with CAD equipment. You have to do that because that's your, that's your bread and butter. But at the same time, what does a leader do you know, they, they go micro-macro. They look for those small thing. Right. We all eat BLTs. If we don't, you don't know what you're missing, right. right? We all make coffee in the morning. We all pick up kids. We all have these breathtakingly mundane moments in our life. But if we can do something to elevate that and say, wow, well, look, if you're a titan of the trade, even picking up dog poop is yeah, epic. So how much fun can we have with that? And how can we socialize it? And how long, you know, what kind of tail does it have? I don't know. But to be in a relationship where you have the freedom to find out, that's the thing. You know, we throw a lot of mud against the wall and we don't know what will stick. But when it does, you know, you have some. You know, I had a leader that used to say, the art of creativity is seeing connections. And it seems like you see a lot of them and that generates new ideas for you. So how much do you like to be part of that concepting process when you're working with a brand versus sort of being handed that? Because it seems like you have a creative director in you somewhere. Well, it's not it's not about like or dislike. Yeah. I can't do it if I'm not connected to the origin of it. Yeah, and maybe it's hubris, you know? I, I, to be fair, I. You know, I have an ego like anybody else, and I and I like to move the needle. I like to feel like I'm doing something, you know, that, that's doing that. But it's it's funny. You say connections. You guys are probably all too young to remember, but the show that changed nonfiction TV was called Connections, and it was hosted by a guy named James Burke in the late '70s. BBC and the Learning Channel teamed up, and this guy. I mean, he's the professor we all wish we had, you know, his English stalks through the countryside explaining how and why the first tracks left by a Roman chariot are identical in dimension to the tracks left on the moon by the lunar land. Okay. 
and he walks you through space and time and history, making these surprisingly disparate connections. Well, I've always wanted to to redo that show. In the summer, we did, and it's called the way I heard it, just like my podcast. But here's the thing: when you're telling these connected stories, and when you're shooting in that style, I thought my head was going to explode because you're shooting like a movie. We had six different episodes that we were filming at the same time in Georgia. So we were shooting different scenes from different episodes, day after day after day. So shooting a show that's basically about connections was for me the most profoundly disconnected thing <laughs> that I ever did because I could never remember where I was. And so I had to do something I almost never do, which was trust a script. Wow. But again, we had a behind the scenes camera rolling. So when we cut this whole thing together, you'll see my version of James Burke's okay. connections, but you will also see me trying to make it and failing in some cases. I love that story because I'm sure some of the creative directors in the room can empathize with this. I am one of the people who sees more connections than are ever necessary, right? And I find that creative people don't need to see all those connections, no. right? Right. And so that's sort of the constant struggle inside our organization is that linear, make it all work, make it all parallel versus just let creativity happen. Well, it's it's the old, uh, it was Michelangelo and the Statue of David, right? It, it's just about knocking away the crap that you don't need. Right, and so what you're left with is is everything you need and nothing you don't. Yeah, That's you're right. Philosophy. We wind up so much of what passes for finished product is filled with stuff you didn't really need. Absolutely. Well, guys, I told you that Mike Rowe was going to have some amazing things to say, and he certainly did. And honestly, there's too many good points for me to even pick from to sort of summarize back to you. But I'll tell you a few things that stood out to me that I think we all need to remember as marketers is number one, you know, marketing is best when it's real, right? Talking to real people with no air of inauthenticity from the brand. And I think that's just such a good reminder because I think sometimes as marketers, we get stuck in this wheel of our day to day, focusing on tone and voice. And Mike just says, you know, sometimes you got to just let things unfold. The best laid plans sometimes go awry and you got to be okay with that. And so as we all plan our next big campaign or video shoot, I hope we keep that in mind. I also love that he talks about the difference between sort of big brands and small brands and how when you're a small brand, it is important to amplify your message and get that out there at a macro level. But if you're a big brand, it's actually more important to get to a micro level, no pun intended, and really get out there and talk to those communities that you serve. So great insights. I know it's going to generate additional conversation for us here at Semanal, and I hope it does for you too. But as we go into this last section of the interview with Mike, this is where I got to ask him some questions that actually will carry through all of our discussions. Things like speak your truth. And this is where we ask Mike what's really, really true to his core. Or Osh, where we ask Mike to share some of his failures or lessons learned. We ask him to talk about the secret to getting it done, and his answer is interesting on that. And then finally, we ask him to ask another, a question that he might want to pass on to another participant, and we ask him to answer a question from a past participant. So as expected, Mike handles these questions with ease, and I just want you to take a listen to what he has to say. All right, well, I'm going to switch gears now. There's a few things on the podcast that are sort of consistent segments, and one of those we call Speak Your Truth. And so I'm going to let you take that wherever you want, whether it's about your foundation and, you know, if that's part of your core truth, what are some things that come to mind that are just so core to who you are 
that you feel like you need to speak it into the world? Well, I guess, uh, you know, I just wrote a book and and it wasn't supposed to be a memoir. Okay. And technically it's not, but there's a lot in it that is kind of an answer to that question. And I think my granddad, you know, this isn't a terribly fascinating answer, but, but for me, you know, I, I grew up next to a man who could build a house without a blueprint, who only went to the That's seventh grade. I, yeah, and, but, but what I didn't realize, and what, and what, I, what I typically don't talk about with regard to him, is the fact that he was the one who told me when I failed to follow in his footsteps, which I was sure that I would, he, just, he, he said, look, you can be a tradesman, just get a different toolbox. And that fundamentally changed everything because when I got into entertainment, it, it was with a very different kind of toolbox. Mm -hmm. And um, I really thought of myself as a plumber and, and an electrician working in Hollywood, a, a, a jobber. Right. So the idea that anybody can take the mindset or the philosophy of a skilled tradesman mm -hmm. and apply it to a white collar job, you know, that to me was important. And it, it changed the way I worked and it changed the way I thought about work. At what point in your journey did you recognize your key gifts and become really convicted in that? so that you knew what your toolbox even was? Because I think we all question that about ourselves sometimes. I was 42 and- You remember your age? I, I remember it vividly. I think I mentioned it last night. It was, see what happened to me was I couldn't follow in my grandfather's footsteps so I learned a new thing. The thing I learned to do was imitate hosts mm -hmm. and I became good at it. Good enough to not prosper, but to work as much as I wanted. Sure. So from 1989 mm -hmm. until 2001, I freelanced with a vengeance. I did absolutely any kind of work in the entertainment field that I, that I could do. I didn't care if it was an infomercial. I didn't care about the work. I cared about doing a great job. Sure. Then I cared about not getting stuck with a project that would, that would work. You know, and as crazy as that sounds, you know, in Hollywood, if you really want to freelance, you don't want to get tied down to a steady gig. So my head was on completely different. I was looking for projects so poorly conceived that no amount of luck or talent could possibly salvage. <laughs> I would then attach myself to these turds and, <laughs> and get paid for doing the best job I could. And then I would update my demo reel and then I would be free again for a couple of weeks or months. So I was taking my retirement in early installments while I was working in my chosen field with my new little toolbox. Right. And I was feeling really, really smart mm -hmm. about figuring that out. Yeah. But of course, you do that for 10, 12 years and, and you realize you're not really doing anything other than amusing yourself, sure. which is important, but I just wasn't, doing anything that felt that it mattered. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's when I get the phone call from my mom about my grandfather who's dying at 90. And she says, maybe it'd be nice if he could turn on the TV and see you doing something that looks like work. And I'm, you know, working at the time for CBS. And that inspires me to go out and basically shoot a segment that turned into dirty jobs. The answer to your question is once dirty jobs became a thing, right. I realized 
that I was the one who was over his skis for the first time. I did all my own deals. I didn't have a lawyer. I didn't have a manager. I didn't have an agent. I never did. And consequently, I made some of the worst deals in the history of the world. But I made them because they were all designed to fail. Dirty Jobs wasn't supposed to be a hit. And when it was, well, that's when I went looking for help. That's when I found Mary. And eventually, Mary, you know, she was running a very respectable entertainment firm, a law firm. And she looked at Dirty Jobs and agreed that there was something there larger than a show. And so it really, you know, it was very humbling, actually. But to realize, you know, everything you thought you knew about your own industry was wrong. And that the real way to build your own brand is to be belligerently and aggressively transparent with your audience. And happily, Dirty Jobs let me do that. And look, from a marketing standpoint, you guys, I think, will agree. When I I wound up, I think it was 2007, 2008, I started showing up on lists of trusted celebrities. Yeah. yeah. And there was a time when I, I was near the top of that yeah. list. That's great. But it wasn't because of me. It was because I was aligned with brands that were trusted. Sure. The Discovery brand was immensely trusted. Yeah. Still are. Ford, Caterpillar, etc. But most importantly, when people see you in a sewer covered with other people's crap, right, (laughs) and looking at the camera and saying something, the tacit question in their mind is, why would he lie? (laughs) What what could he possibly be hiding, of course? And the answer is nothing. When you're covered with other people's poop, you get a weird level of permission (laughs) to do or say almost whatever you want. And that really at base, well, that was the core upon which we built our business. And it's so freeing. You find yourself not playing roles, but yet being authentically who you are. And it sounds like that was your journey. It was. And on the downside though, just to keep it real, you have to cover yourself and other people's poop every couple days. <laughs> but beyond that, beyond that, it's a winning strategy. <laughs> well, another segment we have on this show is called Oh Shit. Oh dear. Oh, no, we can use it. So if you could go back and do everything all over again, What's something you do different? Mm. Do you have a regret or a failure or just even something you've learned from a story that you share? You know, it's it's so glib. Too few to mention, really. I mean, I always used to say that my big regret with 30 jobs was that I didn't do it 10 years earlier. Because mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a young guy's game. You know? and, there's, and, there's, and there's actually talk now of, of rebooting the whole thing. And I'm absolutely horrified. By it. <laughs> but, but not... Really, because had I done that show 10 years earlier, I wouldn't have been ready for the happy, fortunate things that evolved as a result. I probably would have done it more as a host and less of a guinea pig. That's why what you started this conversation with, the lab rat, guinea pig. You know, once I realized that you could manage expectations by being... (laughs) the thing that is being experimented with, as opposed to the person conducting the experiment, that's what changed everything. So yeah, it's easy to look back, you know, reductively and say, oh, I would have done this here and I would have done this there, but it's like pulling a thread on a quilt. If you start to do that regarding connections, 
you'll find that everything really is attached. And that thread might come out, but you know, four feet away on the other side of the blanket, it's all gonna bunch up and it's gonna be a mess. So no, I, I wouldn't change anything. Was it scary when you started to experiment? Sure. Yeah, yeah. How'd you work through that? Admitted the fear. Okay. First thing you do, show them your belly. I am Mike Rowe, and I'll be perfectly honest with you, I'm a little worried right now. <laughs> I'm up here at the top of the Mackinac Bridge, and my job is to change the light bulbs on the cable. So, you know, you, you just admit it. Yeah. And if you can really bring your audience in, in a conspiratorial way, and bring them with you, they will, they'll forgive you. That's how you deal, that's how I deal with it. Awesome. So another thing I've talked to some of these key leaders of marketing about is that in my journey, I find that the best marketers are those that are sort of un un uh, apologetically brave. You know, they go to bat for really hard things and a lot of these big organizations, it's a constant battle to not just do your marketing job, but to sell the idea um, and to be different. Mm -hmm. So I guess um, my question for you, Mike, is in, in your journey, what has been the secret to getting it done when it's been really hard things that you're going to bat for? Being okay with not getting it done. Okay. You know, I mean, everything, we're designed to measure everything by success. But the best stories in the world are stories of striving. All of them. Look, I, Don Quixote, he tilts at windmills. It's the quixotic journey. Sisyphus is trying to get the rock up the hill. And he does. And then it rolls back down. And then he goes and he pushes it up again. And so you can either look at these Sisyphean quixotic tales as examples of abject futility, or you can look at them and laugh. You can look at them and be inspired by them. You know, my favorite fictitious character is uh, Travis McGee. And he says in one of the John D. McDonald wrote 22 books about a boat bomb named Travis McGee who lives in Bahia Mar on a houseboat solves crimes. They're terrific. Best pulp fiction ever written. McGee also is the guy who said, be wary of all earnestness, which is my my mantra in advertising, marketing, and in nonfiction. But, you know, what was the question again? Sorry. <laughs> What's your secret to getting it done? But it sounds like you said it's okay not to. So for me, some of the times you walk away is when stuff happens, right? And so not fighting that boulder uphill. That's, yeah, it's that, but it's also being in on the joke. Yeah. Whatever that means to you. Right. And McGee says, I forget which book it's in, I think a, a Deadly Shade of Gold, but he says the only sensible way to go through life is with the attitude of the vaudevillian clown, the man who knowingly climbs out of a tiny car with dozens of other men dressed identically, waiting for the pie in the face. If you do that, if you know the pie is coming, right. And if you're okay with the pie, right. then when it hits you, right. it's not a shock. Yeah. And you don't feel like, oh no, oh no, it's pie. Right. Again, pie's not so bad if you built your brand on shit. Unless, of course, it's poop pie. <laughs> All right, so my last question to you, I'm going to wrap up two together. I always ask my podcast participants to ask a question that they would like to pass on to someone else and give them the opportunity to do the same. So the person I interviewed right before you shared with me that about a month ago in the news, there were 200 CEOs that came together. I think Caterpillar CEO was one of them for a business roundtable, And they talked about this idea that, you know, traditionally companies have been having all these conversations about how to make more profits. But at the end of the day, 
and you talk about social responsibility a lot, it's really about being there for your employees, your customers, and making the world a better place. So my past participant asked the question, is that really possible? And if so, how are we going to get it done? So I'd love your thoughts on that, but then I'd also love you to weigh in on what's a question you have for the marketers of the world that you'd love to hear somebody answer? He's throwing a lot at me. <laughs> well, with regard to his question, I would say that profit is awesome, <laughs> but it's either a cause or a symptom. And if you if you look at the whole thing as, okay, here's a new quarter, you know, how do we do? You know, it, it's easy for profit to become the objective. Sure. And profit is a, is a terrible objective. It's just awful. Right. But it's maybe the best symptom in the world. So, so the, on the outcome. I think, yeah. yeah, I mean, unless the outcome is the money, in which case don't focus on the outcome. <laughs> Focus on the boulder going up the hill. You know it's going to roll down, but your job is to get the thing up the hill, right? You're not going to knock the windmill down with the lance, but your job is to poke at it. Do your job. Be great at it. In fact, be indispensable. And then, if the money doesn't come, you're probably in the wrong line of work, where you're just doing something that's so fundamentally misguided that somebody's going to need to correct you. But Mostly, you know, the profits come when sensible people do good work. Work smart and hard. Your there message. you go. Yeah. That works. And now you want me to ask a question and you're going to pass on to somebody else. I would like to know from other, what do you call them? Thought leaders? Yeah. All right. It's a good word. <laughs> uh, I would like to know from whomever you speak with next, what barriers they're putting between themselves and the authentic experience that they surely want to create for their customers. What are the things you're doing to sabotage yourself? Such a hard one to answer. No, it's not. I'm struggling with it now. Okay. <laughs> okay. What did we do today to make this conversation more difficult than it needed to be? What did we do? Did we have it in a room that was comfortable? No. <laughs> We decided to have an honest, unscripted conversation in a sweat box. Right? We decided to record it with audio gear that wasn't really tested prior. No, no offense, Chase, right? You got off an awkward start because like, oh no, you know? We decided to do it under hot lights. We, you know, a lot of things happened because a lot of smart people wanted to do a good job. And so in the midst of that, Intent, you know, how do we step on our own stuff? Right. You know what I mean? How do we get in our own way? Well, you're going to be my coach on this going forward. Oh, my. <laughs> hey, Mary, I'm a coach. <laughs> I just want to say thank you. We have used up all of Mike's time, but I learned a ton, not just about, you know, marketing, but about how you view the world, and I can't thank you enough for doing this. Sure you can. You already did. It's my pleasure. You're welcome. Right. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody. Well, there you have it, folks. Can you believe I got to interview Mike Rowe? I hope in listening, you learned just as much as I did. If you want to know more about Mike, you can check out his website at MikeRowe.com, where you'll find all kinds of information and links to his social pages and even his own podcast. You can also go to MikeRowWorks.org to learn about his foundation or search for him on Facebook under Mike Rowe or Returning the Favor. 
I want to thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed today's discussion, I hope that you'd be willing to give us a review. We do read all of them and we so appreciate your feedback. If you want to download more episodes, just go to marketingsweats.com, which is our podcast website, and you can access all the information we've shared with you today. You can also visit us at samantle.com to learn more about us and get in touch. That's all I've got for you today. We hope you'll tune in soon. Good luck, marketers.